Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green. And in this episode, we'll be talking about the various distinctive regional forms that Islam has taken in different parts of the world. About a hundred years ago, when Western scholars, whether missionaries, anthropologists or Islamicists, began looking at the ways Islam was actually practiced, they came up with a variety of labels for this phenomenon. Whether folk Islam, local Islam, popular Islam, or sometimes they gave regional names like Indian Islam or Southeast Asian Islam or even l'Islam Noir of Africa. For many Muslim thinkers, especially religious reformers since the 19th century, these regional versions of Islam have been seen as corruptions of the true faith that resulted from the negative influence of Christian, Hindu or pagan practices. For both Muslim and non-Muslim commentators, then, the key puzzling issue seemed to be the emphasis these regional forms of Islam placed on languages other than Arabic. Yet, as a world religion, Islam has found expression in many different languages, just like or even more than Christianity or Buddhism. Many of these regional Muslim literatures, whether in Asian, African or Middle Eastern languages, are culturally rich and spiritually profound. But let's stop beating about the bush and talking about abstractions, labels and generalizations. Let's instead look at a case study of one such tradition of regional Islam, one that's as rich as it is little known, the Tamil Islam of the Tamil Muslim minorities of southern India, Sri Lanka and Singapore. Guiding us through this maritime religious world of the Tamil Muslims is Torsten Chaka, who is Junior Professor for Muslim Culture and Society in South Asia at the Institute of Islamic Studies at the Freie Universität, the Free University in Berlin. He's the author of Race, Religion and the Indian Muslim Predicament in Singapore, which was published by Routledge in 2018. Torsten, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Thanks a lot for having me. Today we're going to be talking about Islam in, in South Asia, the, the sometimes called the Indian subcontinent, but including what's now Pakistan, Bangladesh, India itself, and indeed Sri Lanka. And we'll be talking about the way, over its long history, Islam has taken on many distinctive regional and local forms, and we'll be talking ultimately about what those specific regional local forms of Islam are in South Asia. But before we move on to those specifics, perhaps you could uh, explain for us how to think about this, this plurality of, of regional Islams. Personally, I like to think about it in terms, first and foremost, I think there actually is no Islam that is not in some way regional, in the sense that whatever your beliefs as a Muslim, whatever your ideas about life, about practices, etc., you're always obviously in a kind of local context and you are reacting to that context you are interacting with people and in in this way islam in a sense cannot be but regional and indeed in many cases local so i think the the 
problem that I see and what I, I personally uh, would uh, sort of uh, try to argue against is this tendency to assign to a particular type of Islam a general truth which automatic, automatically makes all other types of Islam, whether they are regional or social or whatever, uh, somehow less than Islamic. And this is not what I think the situation is. Every region in the uh, Muslim world is one particular expression of that universal sort of idea of Islam uh, that has its own particular history, its own particular um, foci, its own particular ways of engaging with the world. And uh, in that sense, one might perhaps compare it to uh, the way that there are different Quran commentaries. And it's not as if one commentary is correct and the others are all wrong. They all sort of look at different aspects of the divine message. And this is how I personally for myself try to think about regional Islam. They're all varieties of the sort of universal idea of Islam, but they all um, have different emphasis, different uh, points, different historical developments, trajectories, etc. I think that's helpful, isn't it? Because I think as a as a scholar, as a social scientist, the approach that you've described, I think, is very much in line in the way which social scientists, uh, who are scholars who are not theologians, it's not the job of a social scientist to define which is the true Islam, what is the road to the truth. Uh, our job really is to describe uh, what different Muslims see as, as, as their their own versions of religiosity without actually us in, sort of intervening and saying, well, this one is more more true or more valuable or more authentic than others. So I think what you've described is very much a, a social science type of scholarly approach that, that reflects your own experience, really, as both a field worker who spent a great deal of time in, in various parts of South Asia, but also as a scholar who has devoted... Uh, devoted your career to, to reading in some of the, the regional, lesser known, at least to scholars, um, lesser known languages of Islam, such as uh, the, the Tamil language written in Arabic script. And I'm sure we'll be talking about that as we sure. move further south, so to speak, in our journey through South Asia today. So as we start to, to, to uh, put our, 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 our first footsteps onto the, the subcontinent, let's say, South Asia is home to uh, a particularly rich variety of these regional versions of, of Islam, isn't it? But what would you say uh, are the, some of the distinguishing characteristics of this, these traditional regional South Asian Islams? Mm -hmm. I think this is a difficult question, but, um, and, and one which uh, can very easily uh, go into an idea of there's a particular thing about South Asian Islam. I think there might be one, but to put it uh, across properly, uh, let me try to say it like this. I think what is typical or what is what South uh, Islamic traditions in South Asia generally had to do was they they had to engage, after all, with an already existing, very rich tradition of philosophy, religion, uh, speculation about the nature of the universe, etc that differed substantially from uh, what existed, say, in the Middle East.
in the Middle East, Islam was in connection with a lot of traditions that were, so to say, uh, around its cradle, if you like, right? Christianity, uh, Judaism, even Zoroastrianism. These were traditions that, uh, in one way or the other, were known to Muslims from the very beginning. Whereas in South Asia, they suddenly, Muslims suddenly had to engage with different set of ideas, a different set of truths that at many points, uh, yeah, had developed very, very different answers to, uh, to the same questions in a sense. So I think this particular engagement with South Asian culture that was already in the subcontinent without trying to, you know, get into these very essentializing ideas about the authentic South Asian culture being linked up with Hinduism or Buddhism, etc. But engagement in one way or the other with these traditions is what I would say is typical to all South Asian Islamic traditions. Now, this takes very different forms. And that is why I'm always a bit uh, careful when I hear that word South Asian Islam, because there has been a tendency to assume that there is a singular South Asian Islam, which is somehow identified with the culture of the Mughal Empire, which expresses itself, well, first and foremost in Persian, and then at the next rung in Urdu, and at a rung below that in other languages. And I don't think this is one type of Islam in South Asia. It's a very important one. It's a very rich one. But it's just one of the many ways that engagement happened with the local South Asian context. So, for example, one of the things which, of course, uh, has been highlighted uh, a lot in the past also with regard to South Asian Islam is uh, the tradition of shrine culture, pilgrimage, pilgrimages connected to the shrines of, uh, well, buried holy men, but uh, actually in the region where I work, uh, interestingly enough, also um, uh, other figures from Islamic and you might even say pre-Islamic history. For example, uh, Sri Lanka is after all the place uh, that Muslims have identified for a very long time. Um, as the place where the prophet Adam stepped from paradise onto earth. So actually, Sri Lanka and southern India have a number of pilgrimage sites that are connected with this sort of deep history of Islam in the history of humanity. Adam, Cain and Abel, um, uh, there's actually a shrine in, in Tamil Nadu that claims, uh, that some people claim to be the grave of uh, the biblical king David, etc. So um, I think this is an, uh, an example where um, a tradition, an existing tradition of uh, a sacred landscape that uh, is expressed through different pilgrimage sites, different uh, localities that are for some reason considered to be holy, um, found a way of expression within an idiom that of course exists in the Muslim world. We have shrines in, in uh, many parts of the Muslim world. If you go to Egypt, if you go to West Africa, you will find shrines. But in South Asia, it has uh, become a very important interface between Muslims and non-Muslims also, because non-Muslims go often to the same shrines, either because um, they have their own interpretation of what is sacred about that place, or because uh, they indeed uh, want to tap into the Muslim 
power of the place. So I think this is uh, a nice example of something that is indeed very important within South Asian Islam. Um, and yet at the same time also links beyond the South Asian context to a sort of universal uh, aspect of Muslim practice. So as we move south through the through, through South Asia, through the Indian subcontinent, we start to arrive in this area that you've mentioned, the, the modern state of Tamil Nadu, or the, the southern tip of, uh, of what's today India. And this is, as you've hinted at, this is a really kind of very religiously diverse environment. They're very ancient Christian communities that, that at least date their own origins to the time of the, the, the New Testament apostle Thomas. And certainly they're, they're very old as part of the, the, the history of the Indian Ocean. And of course, although India, we might often think now India and Sri Lanka as being a long way from the Middle East, in many ways in the ancient world or the pre-modern world, seas connected rather than divided people. So in some ways it's a, a short-ish or at least an accessible monsoon wind journey from southern India to, to Arabia. And indeed that the coastal areas of, of, of southern India have these very early Muslim communities that, that trace their own descent to to uh, Arab merchants who came in early Islamic times. As we start to look then at the, the Muslims of, of what's now southern India and the, the Tamil-speaking region, um, perhaps you can tell us something about the, 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 the Tamil Muslims, the Tamil-speaking uh, Muslims, uh, who are one of the, the least known of, of South Asia's Muslim communities. As you said, with South Asia, uh, South Asian Muslims, you often think of the North, and not least because of the foundation of Pakistan as a, as a Muslim homeland in 1947. So could you tell us something about then these Tamil Muslims and, and how their, their community evolved and how indeed their, their, their variety of Islam took shape over the centuries? I think what uh, is most important in, in uh, the development of Islam in that region um, is to see that, and what, what I find particularly interesting, is sort of a, an overlap of two process, processes of, um, if you want to call it like that, Islamization. You have, of course, uh, the, let's say, well-known traditional idea of Islam slowly spreading from the northwest uh, towards the south and um, the traditions that come with that, the, the, um, the history, the linkage to uh, particular schools of laws, uh, of law within Sunni Islam, etc. But then on the other side you have this connection through the Indian Ocean and uh, the kind of coastal Islam that extends, of course, to a far greater degree on the west coast, but that extends around uh, the tip of India into, uh, onto the east coast. And the interesting thing of the different overlaps between these two histories, so it's not like when you look, for example, at the neighboring state of Kerala, uh, that is pretty much a pure Indian Ocean story where, uh, well, you have, a, as you mentioned, a long-standing settlement of Arab as well as uh, also Iranian merchants along the coast, and then slowly, slowly a development of local Muslim communities. On the Tamil side, you have that, but then you also have this uh, uh, movement from North India in several waves, really, and that produces a very, very complex picture. So I, I feel every time I say something about the region and I start learning something about it, I encounter imme almost immediately something that seems to contradict it. 
because I can speak about Tamil Muslims in the sense of saying, yeah, these are people who are Muslims and who speak the Tamil language at home. But how they relate to that language, how they relate to Islam may be completely different. So in northern Tamil Nadu, you have people who are uh, actually by now starting to Urduize, to adopt Urdu, because they feel this is actually more Islamic. In other parts of Tamil Nadu, you have people who say, why, why, sh why should we learn Urdu? This has nothing to do with us. It's just another language. So nice to see it, but um, not our tradition. And that gives the region a very complex sort of texture, which makes it very difficult to uh put it in um so encapsulate it in one sort of descriptive uh, frame having said that at the same time what i think interests me most about the region is precisely that engagement with the tamil language and the reason for that is that uh, i think there's something special here that in the same way you can't find anywhere else in in south asia <laughs> You have a 500-year history of the production of texts in Tamil language about Muslim topics. And the really interesting thing, this is of course something that is not special for that part of India. You find this in many other parts of India as well. What is special is the fact that the Tamil language itself has a history uh, where there is a lot of self-reflection about the language, about writing literature, how to write literature, how to express things. And Muslims actually taking over that sort of those meta ideas about poetics, grammar, etc. Which really helps you when you read these Muslim texts in Tamil, which look at the first glance very, very different from what we expect Muslim texts to look precisely because they draw only in a very limited manner on, on Arabic models or Persian models. They use a lot of Arabic and Persian vocabulary, that for sure, but beyond that, they, are actually, they actually look very different. But once you actually start reading these texts with this sort of um, secondary tradition of how to read them, then you suddenly see how people actually expressed completely recognizable Muslim ideas in an idiom that uh, had been shaped by very different sort of uh, um, intellectual uh, trajectories until then. And this is really the thing that, that brought me to the Islam in that region. Um, and that still continues to fascinate me. But at the same time, um, I still want to stress that all these other types of Tamil Islam that also exist uh, are as fascinating to me. So um, I actually think, uh, even while I'm particularly enamored of one style of them, uh, all the other ways of being a Tamil Muslim actually also inform how to read um, this particular uh, tradition. <laughs> What you've said about this this Tamil literary tradition and indeed a Tamil Muslim literary tradition is really fascinating because so many different parts of the Muslim world have these regional religious and indeed kind of secular and poetic literatures, don't they? I mean, whether it's in 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 Africa with 
the regional African languages, sometimes called the Ajami languages, which are these different African languages written in the Arabic script yeah. with loan words from Arabic and indeed with certain borrowings from the, the, the great rich literary tradition of, of Arabic, uh, Arabic poetry and prose. But what you said about uh, about Tamil literature is particularly interesting because, uh, as you said, uh, before uh, the development of a Muslim community in Tamil-speaking regions of, of, of South India, there was this centuries-long tradition of what's sometimes called classical Tamil literature. And in some ways, the, the, the kind of the the closest and, and somewhat different, but the closest parallel within Christianity is when Christianity adopts Latin as one of its languages, when there's already this very rich literary heritage of Latin literature, but it's a heritage of worshipping these quite dif- different gods, the multiple gods of, of, of the Roman Empire. And in a sense, there's, there's something of that here with Tamil literature and this rich and certainly prestigious set of literary, high classical literary models but these are literary models based around worship of, let's say, the Hindu gods, and particularly yeah. the, the god Shiva. So could you talk us uh, around an example of that, and perhaps uh, around the, the most famous example of Tamil Muslim literature, which is the Sirah Puranam, the life of the Prophet Muhammad written in Tamil? Yeah, I mean, the Sirah Puranam is, a, is in, in many ways the perfect example uh, for this, this process that I, I talked about. So on the one hand side, if you follow the storyline of the Sira Purana, you encounter um, something you already know, namely uh, stories about the prophet, how the prophet lived, uh, when he was born, how the first revelation came. So in that sense, the Sira Purana is by and large very recognizably Muslim. What on the other hand is not so recognizable is the imagery of the text. So the text talks about the city of Mecca in terms of what was considered um, a beautiful city in Tamil terms. That means you couldn't say, um, oh, Mecca lies in this dreadful desert. No, Mecca was, is described as being surrounded by luscious rice fields and coconut palms and uh, um, uh, a typical sort of Tamil farming landscape with lots of water uh, because it, it was just not the way you could speak about the city of the hero of a poem uh, in any other terms but this very fertile, luscious landscape. Um, and I think the most fascinating part is precisely the title of the poem, Sira Purana. Now, Sira in Arabic means a biography and specifically the biography of the prophet. A Purana in the Sanskritic tradition, in the Hindu tradition, is something rather different. It's a text, well, usually which we connect with Hindu mythology. And in the Tamil context, um, a Purana very often is a text about a particular temple, a a particular sacred site, and why that site is sacred. But you have Puranas as well, which talk about important religious figures. Now, the interesting thing is this use of terms such as Purana to refer to a Muslim text is actually something that is part of a wider idea amongst Muslims. So Muslims, for example, call the Quran Veda, right? So like Hindus, uh, there are the Hindu Vedas, the Sanskrit Vedas. But and the Vedas are the, the oldest sacred texts. Of the old sacred texts of, yeah, indeed. But at the very same time, that term is used amongst Muslims to refer to the Quran.
Now there are said amongst Hindus, there are said to be four Vedas. For Muslims, the four Vedas are the scriptures as they were revealed by God. So the Torah, uh, the Psalms, the Gospel, and um, the Quran. Now, if the Quran is the Veda, then the Purana, in a sense, is a signal to a, to a Tamil reader that this is a text which is based on authoritative knowledge in another language, because practically all Hindu Puranas in Tamil will tell you that um, they are uh, derived from Sanskrit texts, right? Even if there's actually no Sanskrit text on that particular topic. But they are derived from uh, Sanskrit texts that were revealed by uh, the sages sitting in the Himalayas. So in a similar vein, all these, the Sira Puranam is not the only Muslim Puranam, all these Muslim Puranas are based on basically what they claim is what is contained in Arabic texts. And now they're telling you this in an idiom that you as a Tamil listener or a Tamil reader can understand. So it's, it's exactly an example of this. Uh, how do I use a category that exists within this Hindu Tamil tradition to actually say something that makes sense to a Muslim? And the Sira Puranam and many, many other similar Puranam poems composed by Muslims is one example for that. And you described just the way in which the, the, the Sira Puranam and other Tamil Muslim texts summon a certain landscape and indeed and imagine this sort of this rich fecund rice paddy field landscape of Mecca but of course there's also uh, as well as the let's say the, the imagined uh, for Tamil Muslims who, who never make it across the Indian Ocean to make the pilgrimage to Mecca this imagined landscape and sacred landscape of, of Mecca and Medina but of course there's also their their very real local sacred landscape of, of shrines to various holy men often associated with the the sufi the mystical brotherhoods that have spread of course across the, the islamic world and the, the most famous of these holy sites among tamil muslims is the, the shrine of shah al-hamid in the town of nagor could you summon us up something of the of the landscape of the environment and indeed of the the pilgrimages themselves that the tamil muslims make to the shrine of Shah al-Hamid in, in the town of Nagor. Yeah, actually that shrine is, a, is yet again uh, a very different but uh, similarly fascinating example of uh, um, how Muslims in a sense fitted in into the local uh, society. Um, the shrine itself is in a port town, right? In, uh, in effect, um, this is a uh, there's a river delta. The river is called Kaveri, and um, it is in that Kaveri river delta. And uh, this is a particularly densely populated area with long-standing trading connections in all directions, but especially uh, across the Bay of Bengal, across the Indian Ocean. And the shrine of Shaul Hamid is really located at one of these river mouths of this delta region. Um, it, it sort of uh, uh, rises out of, of uh, coconut groves in a sense. You can see it from quite far away. 
And you can see it definitely um, when you're on a boat uh, out in the sea and you can see it from uh, looking out from the boat towards the coastline. Uh, so the shrine which developed in the 16th century, the, the saint is said to have come from North India in this case, um, and settled in that region with the support of the local king, uh, ultimately passed away there and was buried there. And this shrine has been very, very important for uh, the local Muslim community who were strongly engaged in transoceanic trade. And over time, uh, it developed a particular importance to people connected to the sea, both to uh, boatmen and uh, overseas traders, but then also from the 19th century onwards to uh, people migrating from uh, Tamil Nadu to other parts of the world, especially indentured laborers. Um, so much so that uh, actually Hindu indentured laborers brought uh, the veneration of Nagur Miran um, to the destinations uh, uh, in the Caribbean and in the southern Indian Ocean, in La Réunion, in Mauritius, um, where they ultimately settled. So. Uh, this is an example of a site which on the one side is very strongly Muslim. It is very strongly connected to the local Muslim community. Um, it has uh, long-standing ties with Muslim royal houses in the region, etc. And on the other side, it is a place that has had uh, an importance for um, Tamils, irrespective of their religion, um, especially when they had to embark on these dreaded sea voyages, which after all meant that for years, if not forever, you would be sundered from your homeland. So uh, this is a particularly interesting case, uh, again, of how Muslims sort of play a role locally, uh, not only by themselves, but as Muslims in a wider society. when I visited Nagore, I noticed one of the, the models of boats that have been presented by various devotees, presumably in some measure of, 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 of requesting or, or thanking the saints for protecting them on the, often these very treacherous sea journeys on traditional vessels across the, the, through the monsoon winds that projected them across what was no doubt a very choppy uh, seascape of the Indian Ocean. And then when I visited Singapore, I was delighted to find that there's a, so to speak, a branch of the, the Nagor Shrine, the Nagor Dalga, as it's often called there in Singapore, that was brought by the merchants or laborers that, that moved out of Tamil Nadu. And in your own work, you, you, you've, you've discussed this process by which what scholars of, and anthropologists have often called conceived as local Islams in many ways aren't local at all, because through these kind of the, the journeys you've described of Tamil's uh, as merchants or as indentured laborers moving across the, the Indian Ocean and indeed to the Caribbean, these local forms of Islam actually become translocal or, or, or something other than just being settled in one place. So could you talk us through something of that more, how, where, how Nagod and that, the Nagod Shrine or indeed how Tamil religiosity expands into other places? Yeah, this is uh, actually Nagor yet again is, is uh, the most 
striking example for this because it's not only Singapore. There's uh, another branch shrine in Penang in Malaysia. Um, there were, I'm not sure about their current status, there, were, uh, there was a branch shrine in uh, Yangon, in the capital of Myanmar. Uh, so this is something you find uh, along the coast of Bengal, in a sense. And uh, the interesting thing is that um, this was one way, of course, on the one side, for those people who had gone and settled elsewhere, to reconnect back to uh, the space that they still saw as their home. Um, at the same time, it was also a way to actually interlink with local Muslims. So uh, in a very fascinating description uh, in the early 20th century, a uh, famous uh, Dutch scholar of Islam, uh, Christian Snukhoronje in Indonesia, he was talking about Aceh, so the northern tip of the island of Sumatra, which is really in a sense across from Tamil Nadu and which has had a long-standing connection uh, with southern India, uh, historically, through trade, through settlement. And Sumatra in what's now Indonesia. Yeah, in what's now Indonesia. And um, uh, he describes in that book that um, the one foreign saint, so to say, that is truly uh, venerated also by the Achenese is um, uh, this uh, uh, saint of Nagur. And... He wrote this in the early 20th century. Shortly thereafter, the book, which was written in Dutch, was translated by um, uh, somebody into English. And that person uh, was uh, stationed in what is now Malaysia. And he actually added a footnote at that point and said, well, actually, in, in the place where I live in Malaysia, on the yearly, the annual anniversary of the saint, um, the people will... Uh, get together money and gifts for the saint, requesting the saint for all sorts of uh, booms. And they would dump all that into the sea in Malaysia. And th the story was that uh, a few months later, it would miraculously wash up at Nagur and collect it there and put into the shrine. So uh, there's a whole network of um, pious practices interconnected by the veneration of that particular holy man all around the Bay of Bengal. And some of these were, of course, also, um, let's say, I mean, some people may have just uh, thrown the money into the sea, but uh, we do also have enough evidence of very ordinary sort of transactions happening. So in the 19th century, you find newspaper uh, articles where people say, well, we have collected money and uh, gifted a big uh, chandelier to the Nagur Darga. And then there's a list of names of who um, gave money to uh, for that chandelier, including, uh, interestingly enough, not only local Muslims, but uh, uh, sometimes uh, European uh, merchants as well. So... Um, that tradition, especially in the 19th century, when, when uh, travel became a little bit more um, safe, but was still something that you didn't just embark on on a whim, uh, you have this expansion of this particular shrine network. So this, this culture, this religious culture that you described for us of gift givings and offerings to the shrine of Shah al-Hamid, 
this is a, in, in a way a good example of of the of what you've described as on the one hand very a, a typical practice of of South Asian Islam of making these devotional gifts to a saint who is the person that connects ordinary Muslims to the Prophet and to God and becomes a channel, if you like, of of God of Allah's protective power and blessings. But at the same time, that it's very typical of South Asia. This is the kind of practices one might find in many other Muslim environments, whether in Egypt, whether traditionally in Arabia, before the foundation of Saudi Arabia in the 20th century and throughout the Middle East as a whole. And I think what you've also summed up, though, very nicely is this sense of a, this sense of a, of a, of a maritime religious culture as well. Islam is often thought about kind of perhaps in a rather cliche way as being a religion of the desert. And to a certain extent, that's, that's true to a certain extent. But of course, even the Prophet Muhammad himself was a trader. His kind of, let's say, his, his business practice, or at least the trade, uh, the Arabian traders of his day revolved, in, would partook in the trade between the Indian Ocean and, and the Mediterranean. Uh, so this, this, this maritime aspect of Islam, I think, is tremendously important. And that continues with the, the trajectory, the kind of oceanic trajectory of the the history and expansion of the Tamil Muslims over to overseas environments that you've already described to, whether in Malaysia uh, and, and uh, Singapore through Southeast Asia, but also further down in South Asia to, to the island of Sri Lanka. So could you tell us something then about the, the Muslims of Sri Lanka and then their connection with this Tamil Muslim heritage of, of mainland India? Mm. Sri Lanka is a, a, an interesting uh, case because um, it's, a, it's a case of the same history turning out very differently in a sense. So uh, in many ways, Sri Lanka or the Sri Lankan Muslims are part of the same developments that uh, we see in South India. So we have uh, Arabs uh, settling very early, uh, probably intermarrying uh, locally. We have people going on pilgrimage uh, already uh, a few hundred years, maybe four or five hundred years after the uh, death of the Prophet, to that place where the Prophet Adam uh, stepped onto earth from paradise, which is, of course, also at the same time a Buddhist uh, pilgrimage site. So um, this is very much the story of a sort of uh, transoceanic trade network that uh, sees Middle Eastern merchants uh, uh, develop ties to local communities, which slowly over time lead to the development of Muslim communities. And Muslim communities in Sri Lanka mostly traditionally used to speak Tamil, even when they actually live in predominantly Sinhalese-speaking areas in the southwest of uh, the island. Um, so in that sense, the sort of deep history of Islam in Sri Lanka is very, very similar to the situation in Tamil Nadu, and it is very deeply connected. People who can cross the Indian Ocean can easily cross the rather short distance between India and Sri Lanka. There is a lot of interconnection, uh, trade, etc. going on between uh, the two sides of the Gulf of Mannar, which is really that area defined by the southernmost part of the Indian East Coast and uh, the Sri Lankan West Coast. Um, so the connections are there, very close. 
people read the same literature. The Sira Puranam, actually the very first academic article on the Sira Puranam was written by uh, a Sri Lankan author and drew on uh, practices uh, current in mid-19th century Sri Lanka. The intriguing thing is that uh, the development of these two different nation-states of India and Sri Lanka have led Sri Lankan Muslims in the present to identify in a very different manner as Tamil Muslims in India. In India, the Tamil Muslims really very actively have claimed that adjective Tamil for themselves. It actually has helped them a lot that they were able within a context where there was a local sort of regionalist movement that stressed Tamil identity over religious affiliation, which made it possible for Muslims to say we are part of that same Tamil community. In India. In India. In Sri Lanka, on the other hand, um, Muslims didn't gain half as much from being connected with the Tamils. That is due to various uh, uh, reasons. In part, as I just said, some uh, part of the Muslim community actually don't live in majority Tamil areas. Those that do, especially on the East Coast, very often are actually the majority. So they have very little reason to sort of subordinate themselves to non-Muslim Tamils. And then, of course, there is uh, the history in the last hundred years of conflict between Tamils and Sinhalese in Sri Lanka, uh, where it was actually um, of benefit for many Muslims not to identify as Tamil in order not to be caught up in the crossfire of the civil war, especially in the 1980s, 1990s. So you have this very curious situation that you have a Muslim community very similar in many ways to uh, the Muslim community, the Tamil Muslim community in India, with a lot of links, sometimes family links, a lot of recognition between the two, but a very different way of uh, sort of seeing their own place in the local nation state nowadays. One saying, we are Tamils, we are part of a larger Tamil community in India, and the other saying, we're actually a separate ethnic group. We are Muslims. We are Moors. Dr. Torsten Chaka, thank you so much for telling us about this rich history of connection, localization, and in some time, some periods, disconnection in the history of the Tamil Muslims. Thank you. Da 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 da